Hello, and welcome to Wavelength by Resonance, a podcast where we aim to bring you the biggest news in tech from the last two weeks and what headlines to watch out for next. Hello everyone, and welcome to Wavelength by Resonance. Every fortnight we bring you the biggest news in B2B tech from the UK and the rest of the world, and let you know what it'll mean going forward. We're joined this week by another return guest from all the way back in May. He's found his way back to us. It's Alex. How you doing, Alex? Yeah, doing really well, Dan. Thanks uh, Thanks for having me back. It's great to be here. Looking forward to discussing the, the week's tech uh, news with you. Oh, you, you don't even know how much I'm looking forward to this. <laughs> so uh, without further ado, let's get into our first story of the day. And that is the UK government blocking a Chinese purchase of a UK electronics firm over security concerns. Now, this is Kwasi Kwarteng, the business secretary, who's basically blocked the takeover of this electronic design automation company by a Hong Kong firm. And this is because the government's worried about risks to national security. And Kwasi's power to do this falls under the new National Security and Investment Act, which was introduced at the start of the year. And basically what this all comes down to is Super Orange HK wanting to acquire Pulsic, which is based in Bristol. And the problem is that the government says there's the potential for these tools to be exploited and to build defence or technological capabilities. Yeah, well that is something that we have seen from the Chinese uh in the past, using Western technological advancements and innovations to build military equipment for their own uh, military. Yeah, well, exactly. And let's not forget, this comes in the context of this kind of global struggle between China and the US as these big superpowers for kind of semiconductor or electronical manufacturing supremacy or even just self-sufficiency. And it's this battle where Britain seems to be caught in the middle a little bit, where the government doesn't want to be overly influenced by China, but it also doesn't want homegrown companies like Arm to be tempted, you know, to the New York Stock Exchange and sort of on the other side of the pond, where there is this sense that the, the British government still wants its own kind of independence in this silent war, if you yeah, will. Yeah, well, obviously... In this, in this contemporary modern world, technologies like semiconductors are mm. vitally important for modern economies, modern technology, oh, yeah. militaries. So it's it is something that is going to see a lot of uh, a lot of the, yeah, as you say, a silent war over these um, these technologies in the future. Yeah, and like we've we've already seen it in the past couple of years. In 2020, Huawei was banned from the UK's 5G infrastructure, and that was also, you know, citing national security concerns. And obviously, Huawei themselves were like, oh, "That's ridiculous." Mm. But um, I don't think that changed their minds very much. And this also comes uh, right now. The government's still reviewing uh, a Chinese back takeover of Newport Wafer Fab, which is Britain's biggest microchip factory. So we see how Pulsix takeover is just the latest in a long list of kind of geopolitical struggles in the tech space, especially in the UK. And Liz Truss, who um, UK listeners will now be intimately familiar with, has said that Beijing's increasing assertiveness is a real deep security concern. And uh, to quote her, she says, we should look at making sure we're not exporting technology that can be used against us. We need to clear investment screening, and we've developed that to make sure that we can't have acquisitions of key strategic assets. She said that uh, last week. So obviously Liz Truss is the favourite for Tory party leadership and 
by extension, for the job of Prime Minister. So her position on Chinese ownership of British manufacturing, wafer fab businesses, that kind of thing, shows that leaders of B2B tech companies, particularly in manufacturing, you need to be aware of what this will mean for you in terms of, you know, mergers and acquisitions, continued growth going forward. Yeah, it could, could even mean investment. Um, especially mm. Liz Truss definitely seems much more assertive in her sort of anti-Beijing foreign policy than previous uh, governments and ministers. So yeah. Businesses might need to be aware of where they're getting investment, uh, funding rounds and general investment. Yeah, exactly. And sort of businesses that might have relied on Chinese investment in the past might need to look for alternative routes. This would be especially true for technology that will be sort of nationally important and critical for infrastructure and economies and technology. Well, exactly. And we're seeing a kind of broadening of scope of which technologies are essential to national defence, because it's not just weapons or surveillance. It's even like the very hardware that all of those things kind of rely on. So we're seeing you can't have the weapons and the hardware without the sort of techn the infrastructure in the background, the the systems and the the, the technology that's backing all that up. Yeah, hundred percent. And Chinese officials are going to continue to make statements about how unfair these reviews and denials are. The Chinese embassy itself said that the UK should provide a fair and non-discriminatory environment for Chinese businesses, where obviously there is the concern on the UK's side about how much of a difference there is between Chinese businesses and Chinese government, which may be a um, more transparent line than they sometimes like to make out. And I think tech companies need to be aware of how this will affect them going forward in terms of talent acquisition and growth and restructuring. Our next topic today is about data centre water usage as Thames Water puts its hosepipe ban into place. Now, essentially what's happened here is that Thames Water has launched a probe into the impact that data centres have on water supplies, especially in and around London and the South East. And you might be wondering why that is. Well, this hosepipe ban came into effect last week and affected 15 million customers in this kind of drought hit area. And data centres are a really big contributor to this lack of water. The area around London, especially Slough, mm. and yeah. the area around that is a leading hub for data centres. Um, mm. And it's a, it's a globally renowned and it's got some of the world's biggest and best data centres campuses uh, located there. So yeah. it's obviously a big drain on resources in the area. Well, it's, I saw a stat where one site in Slough that they proposed just applied for permission to use 25 litres of water a second. And obviously Thames Water said no, and they were able to negotiate and get water on site. But that's how much this demand should be like affecting the supply. Like imagine how many residential homes in the area, 25 litres of water a second is kind of eclipsing. Yeah. So obviously Thames Water's faced a lot of heavy criticism, especially recently over its record on fixing leaks or indeed not fixing them. So basically now it's started this exercise to kind of try and understand how much drinking water, especially these kind of 24-hour facilities, which also generate huge amounts of heat, which is why the water's needed, kind of how much water they use to cool their servers, especially considering the, the scale and the demand of these sites. And John Hernan, who's the Strategic Development Manager at Thames Water, said he'd launched this review basically because of this growing demand for data centres, particularly in Slough, which like you said, uh, Alex, is bound to become the second biggest data centre hub in the world. Which I didn't see them bring up on the office, so I don't think... <laughs> 
No, I didn't see that on the office either. But maybe they'll make a new season just so uh, just so we can see that the you advancement know, that Slough's had. Yeah, I want to see what Ricky Gervais thinks about hyperscalers. <laughs> but, yeah. And especially John Hernan went on to say that, like, these data centres don't need to be using drinking quality water just for cooling these servers. So potentially using raw non-drinking water will have the same effect because there's no need for it. There's a there's a there's a gap in the market for uh, someone to innovate some technology to use seawater perhaps. Ah, potentially, um, yeah. Obviously, which has a, lot, a much bigger supply than drinking water. Well, exactly, and this is going to feed into something that we're going to mention in a moment about the way that data centres are going to be planned going forward. But in terms of hooking into the existing water grid that is primarily drinking quality water, there might need to be a change in the way that these places are supplied and the kind of networks that they're tapping into. To move on with that, increasingly the data centre industry is using water cooling to kind of cut back on refrigeration systems, which obviously use a lot of energy and, you know, this will cut costs, cut emissions. And that builds on the back of last month's news about property developers in West London being basically told that the electricity grid in that area was just full, partly because of the amount of power drawn by data centres and that applications for connecting new built houses could be delayed by up to a decade. So obviously data centres are really starting to cut into the way that we not only plan kind of commercial usage of land, but residential as well. However, it's also important to remember that data centres are a massively vital part of the data infrastructure and IT infrastructure of the nation and the economy. So it's not as simple as saying, well, the data centres need to do better or we need to actually have a conversation and a discussion about how we can fix this and make data centres sustainable for water, for energy, uh, so that it doesn't impact uh, people or other businesses. They are vital for the data infrastructure, so we really need to get this sorted. Well, exactly. And in terms of how data centre owners will be looking at alternative means of cooling, uh, you know, especially in the construction of new facilities as, you know, these utilities like water and electricity become more scarce and more expensive, providers and companies using these data centres, which is essentially every company, including the utilities companies, should be aware of how this will affect price and cause fluctuations and really how they need to work with data centre providers going forward. It does seem that data centres are in a bit of a, in between a bit of a rock and a hard place here because yeah. obviously they were using a lot of energy and that was affecting residentials and commercials. But beyond that, from a financial perspective, the, the massive rise in energy prices has seen data centres' uh, energy costs rising over 300% in some cases. Oh, wow. And obviously, as a data centre, energy is the <laughs> biggest output. Yeah. Uh, it's the biggest overhead. So... For them, obviously, it's 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 a hard it's a hard decision yeah. to choose between the water and what could be financial ruin for them with the energy prices as high as they are. Well, exactly, and obviously, UK listeners will know the effects of the rising price cap in the UK. But let's not forget that in commercial spaces, I don't think there is a price cap on per capita energy. It's just kind of no, there's not as much as you are using, yeah. you will be paying. Yeah, so. and I think individual data centers are making sort of agreements with their providers, but mm. it's still a huge outlay, and it doesn't look like the prices are going to be coming down anytime soon. Exactly. Um, and obviously, with the the heat wave that we've experienced <laughs> over here in the UK, yeah. it's been particularly hard going into winter. We might. They might be able to. We might see a lessening in, in the mm. 
They won't need to use so much energy to cool down so much because it won't be so hot. All modern tech businesses rely on data centers, whether they be local or far away. So that's an ecosystem that we're all feeding into. So we need to be aware of the outputs. Absolutely. And there, there is some there is some interesting, if maybe still quite far off, technology coming out of other countries. I think uh, some Japanese data centers are experimenting with different types of energy, um, which could lead to less energy usage, less water usage for cooling the servers but obviously it's still quite a long way off at the moment so hopefully in the next few years we'll, we'll, we will get to a place where we can have a lot more sustainable data centers uh, which will be good for everyone be good for the data centers financially it'll be good for residential other businesses and um, could lower costs for, for businesses using data centers so that's where we want to get to eventually but for now obviously we need to concentrate on how we can sort out this um, this issue of water usage and energy usage for data centers Our third topic today is Amazon pushing for a share of the healthcare market, particularly in the US. So in 2018, at sort of the beginning of this story, Amazon kind of gave its investors a bit of a fright by buying this online pharmacy called PillPack and announcing a partnership with uh, JP Morgan Chase and Berkshire Hathaway to cut healthcare costs and uh, improve care. However, this kind of rebranded Amazon pharmacy didn't get any meaningful traction, according to one analyst, and uh, its telehealth and mobile medicine offering, uh, which they founded in 2019, just hasn't attracted many corporate customers so far. So this partnership kind of quietly disappeared in a 2021. But recently, it also announced that it's shutting its telehealth service, Amazon Care, and sort of ending this ambitious plan to roll out this homegrown platform to millions of patients around America. But it still does have this long stated goal to disrupt the healthcare industry, particularly in the US where there is a lot of dissatisfaction with the way things are being run and private companies have a bigger advantage compared to nationalized countries like the UK. Yeah, obviously in the UK they could bid for sort of NHS contracts, I mean, they could set up private hospitals, but yeah, in, in the US, there's definitely a lot more scope to disrupt the market. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, according to Neil Lindsay, who is the head of Amazon Health Services, basically said that Amazon Care wasn't the right long-term solution, especially because they're not just selling directly to consumers or etc. Their big aim is to sell to external companies and enterprises. But now, the new chief executive, Andy Jassy, is uh, leading this new push into the sector. Uh, and this could be a good time for a disruptor who have a lot of money. And they've recently announced a $3.9 billion acquisition of One Medical, which is this primary care practice based in San Fran, New York, and kind of 23 other cities. And this could be a good time for them, particularly because the pandemic sped up the adoption of telemedicine and other kind of remote uses of technology. While rising inflation has made retail prescription drug customers and corporate insurance buyers a bit more kind of price conscious, having them shopping around for other alternatives. So Amazon's ambition here is, like we've said, is to sell to large enterprises and to capture the market that's there for telehealth services. Yeah, I think they are, it could be in a good position to do it. Obviously, they have that infrastructure in place, the systems in place that they could, they could run these virtual um, health offerings. And thinking about the different ways that Amazon is basically in every American and UK household at this point. Yes. Everyone's got, you know, they've got Amazon Prime, they've got Alexa, they've got, you know, some of them have... Kindles, yeah, audiobooks. Exactly. I mean, they are, in, they are in everyone's home, in everyone's phone. Yeah. Um, it's definitely a brand that is recognised. And I think 
probably could be trusted by consumers to deliver a good service. In terms of that kind of delivery network, there are other big tech companies who will, in future at least, be pushing each other for market share in healthcare. And Amazon's just the ones kind of moving first and moving largest. Yeah, I mean, they're definitely going for that sort of first mover advantage, aren't they? Um, it's, 100%. It, it's going to be a big competition, as you said. And enterprise customers, like we said earlier, due to inflationary concerns, they're going to be price conscious. But just because Amazon's first doesn't mean they'll have the best offering. So it might be worth waiting until there is more healthy competition and these suppliers are forced to diversify their offerings a little bit more. Absolutely. Although Amazon might use their sort of first mover advantage to offer a lower service that is being offered at the moment. Um, mm. Obviously, as I said, they have they have the infrastructure in place. They have the they probably have the economies of scale to offer, a, as you said, a price sensitive um, offering. Well, it's kind of the Walmart strategy, isn't it? You go into a place where a lot of people aren't happy with the local service, you cut prices at a temporary loss because you can absorb it. And then as time goes on and you squeeze out the other smaller opposition, you then raise your prices. And yeah, so it's it's worth looking at your options before you kind of dive into a long-term mm. commitment with Amazon. But also, Amazon will be looking to kind of acquire or partner with more healthcare, healthcare data, healthcare delivery services. So if you are an organization with those kind of capabilities, especially in the US, maybe be looking at how this presents long-term business opportunities for you. Our penultimate topic today is Google changing the SEO algorithm and prioritizing helpful content. So basically, this update, very familiar to people who are involved in the SEO world and companies looking to uh, increase their traffic, uh, will basically punish sites that don't offer answers to questions in concise and authoritative ways. So this might include, you know, product or movie review sites that basically aggregate all these reviews but don't actually provide their own perspective on matters. Primarily, we'd like to provide you with some tips that Danny Sullivan, who's Google's search liaison, told Business Insider about. And these are things that businesses need to know if they're wanting to prepare for this change in how SEO works and kind of keep their own content front and center. So the first thing is primarily just don't load your web pages with extra content that you think will work well with search engines. So just because you have relevant content in your article, it probably won't be rewarded if it's surrounded by a lot of irrelevant information. So say for example, it's an article about, you know, how much would I weigh on the moon? If you give that answer somewhere in a paragraph, but then surround it with loads of irrelevant information about gravity and the moon in general and Neil Armstrong, then you won't be ranked very highly, even though it might have a lot of relevant keywords, if you get what I mean. Yeah. So it, it's it's about, about rewarding the relevancy rather than the efficacy of the SEO. Yeah, it, it's about focusing less on the meta game of SEO and more on directly providing value to the consumer, which obviously Google isn't particularly focused on businesses content marketing effort as much as it is trying to provide value for people using the search engine. So the next thing that we mentioned earlier is product review websites that aggregate other reviews and the fact that they need to change. If you do this in your own site, you need to look at how you can provide your own unique information rather than just sort of aggregating info that can be found elsewhere. Uh, the third tip is that using automated software to produce content isn't as bad as you might necessarily think under these new guidelines. But the key question to bear in mind is, are you using AI to get search engine traffic or are you using it to kind of create helpful content that people would read even if search engines didn't exist? And that's directly from Sullivan in terms of the best way to do things from a Google Insider. 
And the final three points uh, are sort of fairly self-explanatory. Websites that have misleading headlines are going to be punished. So clickbait is uh, hopefully on the out. Which is good news for everyone, I think. Absolutely I think fantastic. All, I think we could all applaud that, <laughs> businesses and consumers. Yeah, and when creating online content, just act as if search engines don't exist. Just think, if someone's coming to my website to answer this specific question, how can I help them? And finally, there's no appeal process for website owners. You can submit requests, I think, but there's no guarantee that they'll be looked at. So it's sort of a, it's a one-stop shop, one and done. You know, If you don't get this right the first time, you're gonna have to try again on the next one. That's interesting, some really good tips there from um, Danny Sullivan. Yeah, and this is a big thing for content marketers going forward. A lot of people I know are doing uh, SEO certifications and maybe realizing that things are changing quite rapidly. But in all fairness, for people who do know about SEO, there's not much that's changed in terms of the core of SEO is providing helpful content in a very tidily laid out way, but it's just about really focusing on the core of what that's providing. Watch out for any headlines about adjustments that Google makes in terms of the successes or failures of this new update. And also watch out for people who will come out with helpful content to help you write more helpful content. Our final topic today, and what I'm beginning to term the meta corner, is that we're gonna talk about Meta again because Meta can't stay out of the news because Meta's PR department might need a little extra help from the rest of the company. So basically Meta has let an algorithm pick 60 employees to fire. So these contract employees were working for Meta via the Texas branch of Accenture, which is obviously this um, well-regarded consultancy. And what Accenture was doing was providing hourly workers for its business integrity and content moderation services under a $500 million annual contract. So this was a significant outlay. Yeah. And these workers are saying that they received notice of this termination via a video call um, a couple of weeks ago. And they were told that they wouldn't be working as of Friday this week and that the salary would stop next month. And they were told that they were selected at random, but given no other information about why they were being fired, like whether it was performance targets or values breaches or you know hiring metrics or anything like that. And Accenture also concealed everyone's identities on these video conversations, including the representative speaking. So this is a very impersonal kind of way to get fired. It's very, very faceless corporate and just a bad way to publicly go about this. Yeah, it looks it looks terrible. Um, looks absolutely looks terrible, terrible for them. From, yeah, from a public relations perspective, it's it's, it's not a headline you want. Yeah, from a human perspective, if you're being let go out of your job, you want to have a face to face conversation with another human being who can explain why this is happening. I don't know if anyone's seen the Matt Damon film Oblivion, which I believe was a follow up from District Nine, but there's a, a section in this kind of dystopian future where he's at like I think they're equivalent of the DMV or whatever. And he's trying to speak to this worker, but it's just a robot that looks a bit like one of those fortune teller robots in a booth. Mm. And he's like kind of trying to speak to it. And it's like, please stop raising your voice, sir. And yeah. just like starts to threaten him. And it kind of gives me that vibe of like people kind of not having redress and kind of connection to an actual person. Yeah, it feels very, it feels very much like meta or the people who made this decision are trying to run away from any accountability. Yeah, and this time period especially with the recent Oracle layoffs as well and cut targets for hiring all across big tech is a good time for more 
iconoclastic, let's say, uh, tech companies who have a sort of slightly anti-big tech approach, more people focused, is a time for them to maybe hoover up some talent that is slipping through the cracks here, maybe because of arbitrarily imposed targets or that kind of thing. Because this is coming only a few days after Meta dropped its target for hiring new engineers, and it dropped from 10,000 to around six or seven. And there was a, a fairly shocking quote from Mark Zuckerberg recently, a couple months ago, saying that realistically, quote, there are probably a bunch of people at the company who shouldn't be here, unquote, which as an employee would not particularly motivate me. Yeah, uh, again, from a public relations perspective, it's not a good look. Yeah, definitely. And for software engineers and contract workers in the space, I think you should be looking, especially during perhaps a coming recession, about whether big tech firms like Meta are the right fit for you. Mm. And it seems like this kind of more cutthroat culture, this layoff spree, is a clear and present danger to people who have these skills and are thinking about the right place to put them. And for business leaders, if you are put in this kind of difficult position of laying off employees, this really shows that it's best to do so sensitively, fairly, and with respect, which is how you avoid ending up in these headlines with Meta, Oracle, and more recently, perhaps the crying CEO on LinkedIn. Thank you for joining us today, everybody. And thanks for coming on again, Alex. It was great to have you back. Thanks for having me, Dan. It's been a a real pleasure to be here and I look forward to coming back again one day, hopefully. Oh, absolutely. All right, everyone, take care and we'll see you for the next episode of Wavelength. Goodbye. Bye, everyone. That was Wavelength by Resonance. Thank you for tuning in and please join us next time.